I'll invite you at this time to pull out your uh, Bible if you brought your Bible with you, and I encourage you to do so um, if you uh, are following along for this series, because the series is not going to be short-lived. Uh, I think we have some plans to include the articles and uh, our appearing into the theology of old until June of next year. And so if you don't have a good, reliable Bible, uh, find yourself a good Bible with some space for note-taking and stuff like that as well. Because we're going to find like in places like today, we might find ourselves digging into places you might not have dug in before. And you want to have those notes, and you want to be able to refer back to that perhaps. And so this morning we're in 2 Peter. Um, I, I had a pastor who, growing up, would always tell me the verse number in his Bible. And as you can imagine, it was never the same verse number, the same page number as anyone else's. So he'd tell you, oh, it's on page 675, guys. And of course, you brought your own Bible, and it wasn't the same number. So for those of you who happen to have this Bible, it's on page 678 for this morning's reading. We're in 2 Peter chapter 1. If you hit Jude, you've gone too far, okay? Um, so if you've brought your electronic Bible, it might be a little bit easier for you to find. Uh, this morning's uh, text comes to us uh, primarily because out of Article 7 in the Belgic Confession, as you may or may not have been following along here, um, over the last uh, couple of few weeks we've been uh, looking at how everyone is a theologian because everyone has words or, or thoughts or things that they say about God even if they don't believe in God. That's a, a word or thought about God, isn't it? Um, and so uh, we've We've embraced this, that everyone is a theologian, and so to help us kind of go through the system of theology, we're embracing an old piece uh, of the past, uh, something that's been a part of our history within the Christian Reformed Church for some time, and you'll find it in things like these books, like the Ecumenical Creeds and Confessions. So these are part of those. This is the Belgic Confession, which a very brief history of is Basically, at the time when the Roman Catholic Church was persecuting what was happening in Europe, the Protestant Church, who was reading the Bible anew, reading it for the first time, not uh, translated or, or handed down to them uh, from the Latin or just told this is what it means, but being able to translate it themselves from the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic, they, they said, metanoia, that doesn't mean what we have been told it means. And so it led to this conflict. And in places like Belgium and Netherlands, which is uh, where we're talking about when we talk about the Belgic Confession, people were uh, under all sorts of persecution as they continued to meet. And so they had to write to the Pope, and they wrote, and they said, these are what we believe. These are the things that we believe. And if you find some division here, I don't think, I don't think it's as, as vast or as deep as you, as you may think. So let's take a look at Article, chap, uh, Article 7, and you guys can read it together with me. Let's put some theology in your mouth, okay? And so this way, together, we can be theologians. Let's, uh, I think we've got it here on the screen. Article 7 refers to the sufficiency of Scripture. Thank you. Let's read this together. We believe that this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely, and that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. For since the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at great length, no one, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, as Paul says, ought to teach other than what the Holy Scriptures have already taught us. 
For since it is forbidden to add to the word of God or take anything away from it, it is plainly demonstrated that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. Therefore, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings, nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of time or persons, nor councils, decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God. For truth is above everything else. For all human beings are liars by nature and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts everything that does not agree with this infallible rule, as we are taught to do by the apostles, when they say, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And also, do not receive into the house or welcome anyone who comes to you and does not bring this teaching. Who wrote... Uh, Does not bring this teaching. I'm confused. I'm, I apologize. I think that's the end of it, isn't it? Thanks, Dick. I, I was anticipating the end. <laughs> so you've tried it on, some theology in your mouth. That uh, I'm just going to wash mine down. What I want to highlight, just for a brief moment there, is that it's the word of God that matters. Do you remember every once in a while I say, and um, this is the word of the Lord, and sometimes you might hear some people say, thanks be to God. The reason why we do that is we say that that's a marking out point. That's where God's word stopped, and that's where human words started. Okay? Let's read God's word together. I'm in first, uh, pardon me, Second Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories from when we told you when, about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven and we, when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must remember that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Oh, you can almost imagine what was going on in this small little church. The chorus again going in the background. Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or noon. Sing it again, morning. Jesus is coming soon, morning or night. And over and over and over and over. And finally, somebody turns to another as they're packing up the chairs at the end of the night and says, so Jesus is coming soon, right? Right, yeah, that's right. That's what the, that's what the song says. But, but so where is he exactly? if he's coming soon, because my measurement of soon was a little bit different, I think, than maybe his idea of soon. It doesn't sound very soon. You see, and so it began. Some theologians within the first church were starting to already pick apart some of those words. We do that as theologians, don't we? Focus in on a word or two. What does soon mean? What do you mean by soon? Jesus is coming soon. And so it begins. You see, it's not difficult when we enter into this realm. Especially when we get to our books. It is important for us to have a reliable manual, is it not? If we are to govern our lives by this, by this book, it ought to be reliable. And so we take a look at our history past, and we, we know that there's so many other books that have been a part of the conversation. Maybe you've heard of them, the Apocrypha the apocryphal books that were written uh, outside of the Bible. But then we have this thing called the canon, and I'm, I'm putting a couple of terms in your, in your head here, okay? Canon, not like, you know, fire the cannons type sort of thing. Canon, one N in the middle. Canon means like the measurement. This is, this is the general uh, standard by which we govern, uh, by which we measure something. That's what a canon is. We had these, these things, and actually, you won't believe the story about how we got some of them, actually. Um, so you go back about a couple hundred years ago, there's a guy named Muhammad Ali, not that one. Another guy named Muhammad Ali, who was uh, walking, he was a, a shepherd, um, and he's walking through a de deserted area in this part of the ancient world, where upon discovering what he thought was uh, just a rock, discovered a clay pot, discovered all of these additional wonderful um, writings. Some of them were biblical writings. In fact, um, you know, some of them were included in uh, the Psalm 105, which, was, uh, which I read earlier as our call to worship. But some of these other writings were the Gospel of Thomas and some of these um, other books, the Book of Enoch, which if you went too far and you traveled into Jude there, you might have read a little bit of Jude. Jude actually refers to the Book of Enoch. These are all ancient books written around the same time. And what we're setting up here, and I'm, I want to explain this, is that at the early time, once Jesus is gone, and the promise for his return to be there, the number of ideas that started rising to the surface as to how and when and where and all of that started coming. And this church, this little church, was starting to, to get impatient. And so they had these People that were coming in, they had an empty pulpit, and so they had to find pulpit supply. And sure enough, some guy comes along and he says, well, you know, when Jesus uses the word soon, it actually refers back to maybe this you know, ancient Ugaritic. And, you know, in the ancient... And they started to confuse the church about the, the imminence of Christ's return. They started to doubt. They weren't so sure about the faithfulness of everything that had been written to them. As you can tell, this is the second letter from Peter, right? 
just as a piece of trivia, this one almost didn't make it into the canon. By the second century, we already had a very uh, strong collection of about 22 books that, we, that everyone had already decided, within 50, 75 years even, um, of, the, of the early church being established. We had, we had 22 books that there was kind of no doubt of our, how many books are in the New Testament? Anyone remember? 20, 27, thank you. Uh, 27 books, so only five books were ever kind of a little bit on the table. This was one of them, Second Peter was one of them. I'm so glad it's been retained, and I'm, sh I'm sure it had to do with this church's learning their lesson, as it were, and saying, no, we need, to we need to hold fast to the truth. And you can hear the pleading. You can hear the pleading in Peter's voice to them and says, don't let go. Do not be so quick to release. Hold on to the instructions you've been given because they are good. They are trustworthy and they are good. He's telling them to remain patient. We hear that by the time we get to chapter 3, actually. It's a, um, it's a reminder that, that God, who is the author of patience, who is the author of kindness, Peter says, he desires that none should patient, that none should perish. And so he is, for, like, for, for you, a day is a day. But for him, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. He just doesn't do things according to our timetable. Perhaps one of the greatest things you can learn today about the Bible is that it is God's revelation to humanity, using humanity to do so. And that means, oh, that means that at any given time, he used humanity as limited as it was. Some people may have difficulty with the fact that we don't have Xerox copies of Paul's letters. In fact, it may shock you to know that we don't have any of the original letters. Every single piece of our scriptures that we have, all the 6,600 pieces of scripture that we have, are all copies of something. And as you can imagine, if I started here in the first uh, row and gave you uh, a, a piece of paper to copy out and you passed it to the next row and to the next row and to the next row to the next row, by the time you get to the end, it could be very fraught with error, a lot of difficulty there. And so it becomes uh, tricky when you start to dig into the, the manuscript, the, into the, the, the historic evidence, and you start wondering where has... Has God been with us this whole time? And I love how Peter, he says, I was an eyewitness. There were prophets before, and he is the light that has come. Notice that light. And that light continues to shine. It's a light in the darkness, folks. And he's, he talks about these three witnesses, as opposed to these false teachers who come in with, with no evidence, who come in with, uh, with no reference to Scripture. Peter's reminding them, hold fast to this book, the same book that we just spoke of its sufficiency. Peter is saying, the book is sufficient, and its promises are true. And he says, they were not carried along by human people. They were carried along but by God. And so when we discover the stories of, um, of people like you know, the Muhammad Ali who trips over ancient scrolls in the desert, we, we wonder, is this really a, a preservation of the line? Oh, we hear lots of questions about our Bibles, don't we? 
Oh, what version are you using now? Oh, that's an, oh that one's fraught with errors. That one, oh, that, I wouldn't trust that one at all. Not at all. So many, so many errors. Oh, some people will tell you the translation of the Bible. Oh, this was done and controlled by the church. You know, the papacy and all this stuff. All these sort of... Hmm. Peter doesn't say that. Peter's saying that the Word of God has been retained by God himself, over, overseen by the Holy Spirit. And you may have noticed as we uh, jumped from Article 2 to Article 7 in the Belgian Confession, you have a little bit of homework. That's to read Articles 3 through 6. That's where it talks about the uh, canon, the uh, apocryphal books, and, uh, and some of that stuff as well. So just want to make sure that you've uh, got your homework assignment. One of the things I can say about our Bible is that it's, it allows us to, as theologians, to take a stance on something. It makes certain and clear certain things upon which we can build, and we call that systems in, in theology, systematic theology, where one idea builds upon another. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to receive all sorts of challenges in your life if you have any meaningful conversation with someone who does not believe in God. You're going to have uh, challenges all the time. And I want to arm you with something that you can do in response to those challenges. People say there is no God. The Bible's not real. It's just fictitious fairy tale. You ready? No, there's not. A straight disagreement with someone who says, well, the, the Bible's not true. You say, yes, it is. There, they say, well, there's no evidence for it. You say, well, yes, there is. That's actually the first place where most Christians stop, is to actually say that there is some sort of sufficiency within our evidence. And I'll tell you, by way of the, the evidence to, to back up our, our books or the, the historic person of Jesus, if you want to spend a, a good afternoon on YouTube, there are some, you know, help, help me out with some, um, some names. You want, you want to see, get some names of some excellent apologists, uh, apologists um, see myself or, or Val afterwards, uh, and we can talk you through. William Lane Craig is who comes to mind as uh, one of these staunch defenders of the faith. And, and what he says is that people who come up to you say, there is no God, the first thing you can say is, yes, there is. Most people, they're not expecting you to defend your faith. That's really the long and short of it. They're not expecting you to put up a fight. And most people, let's be honest, never get a chance to respond anyways because most people are not asked about their faith. Perhaps that's a question for another day as to why. Some of it, I think, is people are confused on the, the roads that we're walking as Christians. I'm, and I use this as an analogy. I'm using this as a, as a mean for us to understanding that the Bible is in, in some ways, some ways like a map. And if we want that map to be useful, we need it to be trustworthy, right? We need to know that we can expect certain things along the way. I was thinking about a man who was... Um, called to leave his village. And he had to go a route that he had not been before. And he was being summoned. And uh, he was being told, you have, to, you have to leave home and you have to make it to this city. But do not, under any conditions, turn the other way and make a mistake. When you meet that fork in the road, do not make a mistake. 
because that will lead to your absolute doom. Well, the man starts out on his path, and he gets to that fork in the road, and there's a sign there that's supposed to be of help to him. And the sign is broken. It's laying there on the ground. So he picks up the sign. He's trying to figure out the sign. And then he realizes that if he knows where he's come from, he can look at the sign and figure out which way will lead to his death and demise and which way will lead to the summons that he's supposed to come to. See, friends, if you know where you've come from, you can have a very keen idea as to where you're going, especially when the book gives you a keen idea as to where you've come from. The Bible is a roadmap, and it has been throughout times. And yes, we do have issues. I, again, these are the things you're going to hear. The Bible is full of errors. Friends, I, the easiest response I can give you is, there is no document on the planet that has the reliability and historicity that the Bible has. There's no, there's no book. We have greater evidence for the person of Jesus than the existence of Constantine. We have, uh, there, there are some tremendous claims that are being made in the Bible. And so for this very reason, people would love them to be inaccurate. And what Peter has said is, for us to continue to trust, for that church to continue to trust that God's Spirit presides. Some people will say, well, these books were just randomly chosen. Remember some of those other ones I told you about, those other Gospels or the Apocryphal books? Sometimes those books were not chosen. Some of them are helpful if, you, if you've read them. Sometimes uh, they can be really helpful. Sometimes they're entertaining. Um, you'll find one where there's a 60-foot Jesus. Um, yeah, and... Yeah, so it could be entertaining for you at some point uh, to, to do that. But the reason why they weren't is that they were usually later written books, books that were not written by apostles themselves, people like Paul. And so because of this, we have people who want to poke holes in that too, saying, yeah, this, this Bible is all just randomly, you know, shodden together. But as I've already said to you, basically from the beginning, within about 50, 70 years of the last book, we already had 22 of the 27, and there are two people, Irenaeus and Origen, who are both using basically the 27 books and touted them as being authoritative books within our Bible. This is within a generation, two generations, of the ministry of Jesus Christ. That is unbelievable for 2,000 years of history. God is faithful in keeping his promises, especially when it comes to retaining his word. And just on that, we spoke about Moses a couple weeks ago, and Moses, and one of the things we're always so thoughtful about with Moses is, are, are the Ten Commandments. I was talking with someone this week, and we talked about the two tablets. I said, do you think God couldn't fit all the Ten Commandments on one tablet? Do you think that was a problem? Because God wrote it with his own finger, right? If you read back in Exodus 19, God wrote it with his own finger. And so I said, do you think God really had a difficulty fitting Ten Commandments on a tablet, that's why Moses had two? No. It was two copies of exactly the same thing. Do you know how I know that? It was because it was a covenant between God and his people. And whenever you have a covenant, you have two copies of the contract. God was saying 
This is my deal with you. And what's beautiful is that the words at the institution of communion, what does Jesus say? This is the new covenant in my body and in my blood. The paperwork's on the table. People will tell you that oral tradition is a problem. It makes for messy theology, and all this stuff was written later. People will say that Paul didn't know that he was writing Scripture. <laughs> Spend a few minutes in reading Paul, you'll, you'll know that I, Paul, an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ and servant of... You know for certain this man is writing Scripture. The story of Timothy and, then, and Peter and Paul. Um, you'll see people who have varying views on how the canon was, was come together. Say, oh, it was chaos, you know, in the, the Reformation. All of those, you know, books, and you had this guy named Luther, you know, the famous Luther who had 99 problems, but the door wasn't one. And so he, he, he was complaining about the one book he didn't like was James. Go figure. Theology always takes place in time, in a place with a certain people. And he was in conflict with the Roman Catholic Church. And James is all about, show me your faith by your works, right? And so that works righteousness thing, uh, Luther had some difficulty with that. Besides this, we're going back, friends, we're going back into the third century when we have a, an order of the books of the Bible. There's no chaos here to our canon. It's one of the longest lasting the, um, anthologies uh, of ancient literature. The, the Bible itself is the envy of every other form of religious writing because of every attempt that has been made to detract from what has been um, touted as being the, not only the most best-selling uh, best book, which you probably have seen that's been well removed from the New York Times bestseller list after being on there for eons. Um, no, no book could outstyle the Bible. After being translated into thousands of languages, literally thousands, this book itself has had a, a dominance, a prominence that people wish that they could dent. But as Peter reminds us, God's word is sufficient. It's everything we need to be able to trust him, even if it feels like Jesus ain't coming soon. It's sufficient because it's true. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Peter says, it's verse 20 and 21, where he says, there's three, there's three witnesses here. First off, there's the eyewitnesses. Remember those 22 books, basically the 27 books. The eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. He goes, take a look at the Hebrew prophets. They all spoke about this Messiah. That's witness number two. And the third is the Holy Spirit that testifies in the hearts of all men. He says, God's word is eternal, and it's trustworthy. Heard someone making a shepherd's pie using grandma's recipe. And they'd been handed down from, you know, a couple generations now, and called up mom and said, I do not understand what's going on here. I've got potatoes galore. I've got, you know, peas and carrots, no problem. I've got, like, no meat, no gravy, nothing like this. This is like a side dish. What's going on? Like, well, have you read the recipe? Well, yes, of course I read the recipe. And so, okay, so you have it in front of you. Yes, I've got the recipe in front of me. Okay, so read it to me. Okay, so we'll dice up two carrots. 
You can get, you know, this many peas, hand your potatoes, prep those potatoes, and go to your local store and buy $3 of beef. Don't you think that maybe $3 worth of beef in 1945 might have cost a little bit different than $3 worth of beef today? The eternality of the Word of God means that the truth of it is true regardless. And, and friends, we can, we can uh, jest. But to this church, it was a serious matter. They were, they were seriously lacking in trust, lacking in faith. And maybe this far out, you know, a couple thousand years later, maybe we know that soon can be a long time. But the message to them is the same message for us, that God is not done. He's patient and he is kind. And what had happened in this church is they had forgotten that. They had actually just started enjoying living, just enjoying life, enjoying party after party, refill after refill. Because Jesus was coming soon. And by that third witness, the witness of the Holy Spirit, his word continues to dwell within the hearts of men. And now, where billions have gone before us, we now hold a trustworthy and reliable copy of this in spades. Many of us have more than one copy. But it starts, it all started with Scraps of paper, one church writing to another, hold fast, hold tight. This is what Peter wrote. And God is sufficient. God is faithful in delivering upon his word. I know that as well. I've already alluded to the Dead Sea Scrolls a couple of times. I love the story of them. You can't, you can't write this. 19, between 1946 and 56, there's another shepherd, not Muhammad Ali, a different guy. He was out um, near the Qumranian caves, uh, kind of like um, uh, west of where uh, Jordan is. Uh, for anyone who's been around the, the region, um, there's lots of hilly areas, and there are cave systems in around there that at certain times, uh, you would have gone up there for uh, respite or um, evading an enemy or what have you. Um, this shepherd <laughs> happened to know that his sheep in the midst of a heat wave would find themselves into these caves. But they were so difficult to get up into, he, he wouldn't be able to scale the, the actual rock face, but the sheep had no problem. And so instead, what he would do is he'd, he'd reach down, he'd pick up a rock, throw it into the cave. And go to the next one, throw it in the cave. Until finally he heard a, a little, a little break. What in the world was that? Went up to investigate. And inside clay pots were 5,500 scraps of our Bible. Some of them dating to the second and third century. Unbelievable. The, probably hidden by early Christians maybe second or third generation Christians from this church that Peter is writing to. People who knew the persecution that was coming or had felt the persecution before the 300s came along when Christianity became acceptable. 
Friends, we have a reliable Bible today because a shepherd went after a lost sheep. And I don't know where you are on God's pathway. I don't know if you've felt like you've been straying. Maybe you feel like you've got no pathway marked out at all. In a minute, we're going to celebrate communion together. This is a way for us to stop and to gather and together say and to renew our trust, renew our statement of faith, not because we have strength to do so, because, but because by his spirit, He's brought us this far and we'll continue to trust him to bring us home. This table is open to all those who trust in God to guide them. For those who trust that his word is true and is the way for, for life. And that the only means of salvation is by trusting in the free gift of Jesus Christ when he died for our sin and his blood was spilt. This, this is his covenant. This is his sign to us. Friends, the, the paperwork's on the table. Let's pray a blessing over it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this meal. We get to taste and see that you are good. We thank you that your love for us runs so deep, it runs blood deep. And that, Lord, trusting in you that there's nothing, nothing that washes away our sins. So we thank you for this new covenant that is marked out by your blood that as you gathered with your, your friends and offered it there first, may we be as gracious and as kind with one another as we offer it one to another. Bless us, Lord, not that this meal will fill us with the calories we need, but Lord, that you will fill us with the spirit that we need, that we will be so stirred to magnify you in this place and beyond. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.